You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. You can go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We are uh, doing a a four-week, not necessarily to call it a series, but it's a rhythm that we have in our church normally. We do it in January uh, when my family doesn't take a vacation in the middle of January where we start off with a concert of prayer, uh, which is what we did last week, and I was just uh, so incredibly blessed and encouraged listening uh, to folks praying last week. And... um, I hope you were too if you're here for that. Uh, then we, we do a Sunday on Sanctity of Life, a Sunday on uh, God's Design of Marriage, and then a Sunday on Race and Ethnicity. Um, so today we're going to be taking a look at uh, what God has to say about the concept of human worth. Uh, without a Christian worldview, there are some huge mysteries within the scientific community uh, that they don't have answers for. They have ideas about. Um, but if you ask honest uh, atheistic scientists around the, these questions, uh, they cannot give you uh, answers with any kind of certainty, only gen- very, very loose and generalized guesses. Uh, one of those is where did, uh, uh, where did water, oxygen, and the moon come from? Uh, like those three elements, it's one of the reasons why every time you hear anything about Mars, they're always looking for water. That's what they're looking for, right? Uh, because uh, water is actually such an unstable thing within elements of the world or of uh, uh, you know of the universe uh, that worlds don't retain it. That's not a part of what it's generally there for. Uh, and so how did we get so much water? How did we get so much water that was water that was actually hospitable for life? How did we uh, capture and retain the amount of oxygen that we have in this place? And how do we have a moon that is made of a very similar substance to our earth that without that, we don't have tides, and without tides, this earth cannot sustain life. So those three things, gigantic questions, we have, uh, from a a non-Christian worldview, have absolutely no way of answering that kind of thing, how this uh, blue sphere that we live on is perfectly orchestrated for life. Uh, Another um, issue that exists, uh, or question that is a mystery, Uh, without a Christian worldview, is what caused what is known as the Cambrian Explosion. Anybody familiar with the Cambrian Explosion? Cambrian Explosion is the uh, geological record that, again, in a a, uh, particular worldview, says that about 540 million years ago, almost every uh, physical structure of plants and animals that you see on the earth today came into existence in an incredibly short period of time. Now the reason that that's a problem is with an evolutionary worldview. You guys are familiar with the idea that evolution is ultimately chance over time, right? You just If you have enough chance and enough time, the things land in place and create the order of that. But the problem is if you take too much chance away and if you take too much time away, 
It simply doesn't work. And the Cambrian explosion, uh, within a very, very short window of time, you start having skeletal structures show up, brains showing up, nervous systems showing up, uh, and the very complex body forms that we see across the animal spectrum. These are no longer slugs and amoebas. These are turtle-looking things and fish and other creatures that have body structures. And there is no answer for how that happens in such a short period of time. It's a gigantic conundrum. And I think the third great mystery of Earth without a Christian worldview is when does human life have worth? When does human life have worth? This is the question at the heart of the doctrine of sanctity of life. When does humanity become humanity in the sense that it is distinct amongst all other created things uh, and it holds significant weight and value? The doctrine of the sanctity of life is a component of what we classify as the doctrine of man in theological terms. The doctrine, this doctrine states that all of humankind is made in the image of God, uh, making humanity distinct from everything else in creation. There's nothing else in creation that uh, was made that God said, let us make this thing in our own image. And by that distinction, all human life has eternal value and worth. That's the key distinctive of the doctrine of sanctity of life. And it really does wrestle with this reality of when does human life have worth? And to break that down, we have to ask some questions. What is it that constitutes human? What is it that constitutes life? And what is it that constitutes worth? Well, sanctity of life is the only way that we can truly articulate why atrocities really are atrocities. Um, you know, every time that you, if you're going through the potluck line, we've got some hand sanitizer back there, and you squirt hand sanitizer on your hands, a mass killing happens. Right? You know this? That's... that's that's what it meant. Like, yeah, tens of millions of little creatures suddenly die in the midst of that kind of thing. Uh, and we don't go, oh my goodness, this was an atrocity, right? Uh, if you live in places where there's, uh, you know, roach infestations or ants or those kind of things, or when the, you know, the hotel that you're visiting in Anchorage has bed bugs and they treat that, nobody goes, the humanity, right? Because they're not that. They're not. They're not human. So there is a distinction that we innately understand within humanity, within uh, the, our experience of life, uh, that makes us different from all other created things. And wrestling with that question, again, this is, we, we go kind of the metaphysical and looking at, okay, if all things that are created in a, in a truly evolutionary worldview... It's not just that we're related to monkeys, we're related to trees and lettuce. And everything that we eat is a very distant cousin. And there's some flaws in the way, obviously, that we would wrestle with those kind of things. But without the concept of sanctity of human life, it is impossible 
for us to truly articulate why an atrocity truly is an atrocity. This world is filled with dramatic atrocities. Uh, In 1994, there was an event that is now in history known as the Rwandan Genocide. Uh, The Tutsi African peoples of that place were specifically targeted by their neighbors that in form, color, fairly similar in culture, there was not much difference. But within 100 days, 800,000 Tutsis were murdered. Men, women, children, entire families, entire villages, entire communities, gone. And we, of course, look at that and we say, that was an atrocity. We actually label it as a, a, a term of genocide. Attacking a particular people group and wiping them off of the face of the planet. Of course, we're familiar with the, the, the subject that's been in the news and people have been making all kinds of statements about it recently. The Nazi concentration camps estimated to have killed 11 million total people over the course of their uh, openings. About 6 million Jews uh, and about 5 million other individuals that were deemed uh, not worthy of life. Today, still to uh, describe uh, horrors and things like that, concentration camps or Nazism is uh, immediately thrown to the forefront. Of course, it's actually not the worst of uh, what, what Hitler did. is not the worst in world history of population bases. Uh, Mao Zedong, the founder of communist China, China, saw his people through the lens of communism as cogs in the wheel of progress and not as human individuals. Uh, And uh, through his machine of establishing communism in China, the death was so great that we can't get an accurate count of it. The lowest estimate, the absolute most conservative estimate, is 48 million people. And some higher estimates push it up to 70 million people. It's just hard to wrap our minds around that. If you just think, what if, put it in American context, one in four people dead. It's unbelievable. But before we condemn Mao from, uh, and his atrocities, from 1973 to 2021, there have been 63 million legally performed abortions in the United States of America. Abortion is absolutely a hot-button topic. It is in all political fronts. There are significant numbers of people that vote uh, a particular uh, political uh, stance purely on the one issue of abortion. Generally speaking, they are voting Republican and they are what is known as single-subject or single-issue voters. They may disagree with everything else that the group believes, but that one issue is the point that they uh, wrestle with. Uh, even the concept of uh, abortion is politicized in the way that we talk about it. Uh, the pro or the, the the group that is against abortion labels uh, themselves or ourselves as pro-life. 
indicating that the opposite of that would be pro-death, right? The other side labels themselves as pro-choice, which the opposite of that would be anti-choice, right? Do you see just the, the political jostling of terminology that is used in that? Now, we think of it in broad terms across the U.S., and there have been Supreme Court decisions recently around this subject. There have been states that have passed laws related to how this plays out. And a lot of people get really, uh, you know, worked up about those things, but we don't actually, for most people, they don't actually know much about the laws associated with the state in which they live. Did you know that Alaska has the loosest laws around the subject of abortion of any state in the United States? In the state of Alaska, you can legally have an abortion up until the moment of full birth. Meaning, if a head crowns in the baby birthing process they are legally allowed to sever the spinal cord with scissors and it is not deemed as murder. It is deemed as a medical procedure. The concept of abortion is one of those things that it is, it's so politicized that we don't really know what it is. And I think it is helpful for us to at least have some understanding of what it conceptually is. And I think that's one of the biggest issues around this subject. I can remember from uh, one of my uh, most of my childhood, my mom volunteered in what at the time was called a crisis pregnancy center. Uh, she was a crisis counselor in that uh, ministry program there in Anchorage and they basically worked with uh, uh, young women, young moms, uh, young girls that would come in in crisis situations. They had either gotten pregnant out of wedlock, they were in uh, some kind of financial straits, and they as an organization, as a ministry, uh, would give them a pregnancy test, would give them uh, you know, uh, uh, supplies, either diapers or uh, 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 formula, uh, they had nurses and doctors that would volunteer their time to help do screenings and help with that, and give advice. Uh, but there was lots of times where they, she would come home crying because she had had this young woman who had come in and found out she was pregnant and immediately said, I can't have this baby, I'm going to have an abortion. And they would try and plead and beg and offer to help and everything and they would walk out the door and my mom knew that there's, that there's nothing I can do. There's, I, can't, I can't save this. Until... Something was purchased for that crisis pregnancy center that absolutely changed the game in it. And it's an apparatus called an ultrasound. Because what that ultrasound did was they said, well, we want to, uh, you know, we want to see how far along, you know, you've tested that you are, uh, you are pregnant. Uh, we'd like to be able to see how far along you are and, uh, you know, just help you in that. And the moment that you can put that on and you can say, oh, look, there's your baby. Look, there's some arms that are starting to grow. Or there's a nose. Or there's feet. And you can see movement in those things. It, it no longer becomes uh, a, a medical condition. It becomes the reality that there's life growing inside. Abortion as a procedure is horrendous. Most of the time when in polite company, 
when the subject of abortion comes up or in news and things like that, it's more benign forms of uh, abortion. Um, things like the morning after pill. That's, the big, that's been one of the big hot button things in the last couple of weeks of whether or not you have to have a prescription for that. Can that be mailed to you? Do you have to have parental consent for, in, for underage individuals to sign up for that? Uh, it can be taken, I think it's up to five weeks from conception. Uh, and it basically forces a period uh, that causes a uh, what in normal circumstances would be considered a miscarriage, maybe just a, a heavy bleeding period. Beyond that, the procedures change a little bit more significantly depending upon how far along in the process you are. 50% of, uh, of abortions that take place happen within the first 15 weeks of gestation. Uh, because they are very simple. But there are individuals that wait longer than that, and the procedures that are involved in that, uh, the, the baby that is growing on the inside of the, the womb at that point in time is too large for the body to naturally pass through uh, a simple miscarriage or a heavy period. And so the baby has to be physically disassembled to be removed from the body. There are a number of procedures that can be done with that. Some of those involve uh, a, uh, a high uh, salt solution that functionally dissolves the baby uh, into a way that it can be passed out. There's the vacuum method that literally sucks apart the baby and brings it out. And then there's the surgical procedure that literally goes in and physically disassembles the baby. The one that I described, which to me seems to be the absolute most horrendous, is what is simply known as partial birth abortion, and it is exactly that. You partially birth the uh, infant and then sever the spinal cord at the base of the skull and then remove, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? A lump of cells? Uh, something other than anything human? And of course, these things are not talked about. It's talked about in terms of rights. It's talked about in terms of uh, women's health. It's talked about in uh, terms of political jostling and those kind of things. And yet, there is something innate within us that does not deny the humanity of an unborn child. So the question that we have to ask ourselves... And it is the one that I've never, I've never had somebody that is uh, in a pro-abortion stance honestly answer for me. Is when does human life have worth? And it stems far beyond even the question of uh, abortion and birth. It actually stems into the rest of life. We have issues and questions of, well, what do we do with individuals who are mentally ill? How do we treat the elderly? And then even issues of racism and things like that ultimately stem from a concept of the sanctity of life. Psalm chapter 139 is a beautiful perception, a beautiful picture that David wrote in worship of God's all-knowingness, all-understandingness, all-power, Emphasizing the point of, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. He describes uh, when I, you know, if I try to run away from you, if I go up to the heights or I go down to the depths, God, you're there, right? It's this beautiful picture. But then we get this snapshot moment where the picture of God's understanding of our creation as it took place before our parents knew us happens. 
In Psalm 139, verse 13 begins by saying this, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all of them, the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. This is the word of the Lord. Three things that I want us to settle in our own hearts because there is a temptation within our Christian experience, a temptation as we walk with the Lord to look at the things of this world that are convenient and to embrace them, to uh, mold and shape our understanding of what God has said away from what God has said to something that is more palatable to the world. And it ultimately answers this question, when does a human life have worth. The first thing is this. It is creation and not birth that defines humanity. It is creation, not birth, that defines humanity. He says in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, and you wove me in my mother's womb. It is the acknowledgement of personhood pre-birth. This is the big question that I I ask all the time in this, of saying, uh, when exactly, uh, you know, there are are people that, you know, champion the issue that that abortion is murder. And, And though I conceptually agree with that as a statement, I don't think it's necessarily a helpful thing to be shoving that in somebody's face. But the concept of it is a true reality of asking the question, when is a unborn child considered human? And many, many in the uh, scientific community wrestle with that question. Uh, one of the big ones that has been wrestled in the state of Alaska in legislation uh, is around the scientific study of trying to figure out when does an unborn child experience pain? And the idea of that is, if we terminate that pregnancy, and that's their term, in our terminology, if we kill the unborn child before a certain date, they won't feel it. And so that makes it better. But we can't do that afterwards because they feel that. And again, my question is, so is feeling what constitutes humanity? Because if that's the case, there are people with neurological uh, conditions where they don't feel anything. So, are they not human? An individual who is in a vegetative state at a nursing home, they may be able to feel something, but they don't know it. Is that what constitutes humanity? Uh, in many states, the, the argument is based around the question of 
viability. Uh, when, a, uh, when a woman goes into labor at a certain point in time, uh, you know, 40 weeks is normal. That is expected from conception to 40 weeks. That is normal growth period. And then, generally speaking, you're, you give birth somewhere around that 40-day uh, mark. Um, and as a general rule, it's, it's been understood that I believe it's, what, 22 weeks, I think? Uh, or 21 weeks, something around that, that is considered to be the age of viability, that if a, uh, if a baby is premature born prior to that, that we currently do not have medical uh, capabilities of being able to keep that child alive through development in their, uh, in their condition with underdeveloped lungs and all of the things that are there, and so they tend to not be able to keep that child alive prior to that. So is, is that the moment that we can't perform an abortion after that because they are viable outside of that. The arguments surrounding abortion have uh, uh, gone literally all over the cra- place. Uh, and if you uh, read up on it, I mean, some of it, I, if I say some of it, you might be like, no, there, Chris, there's, there's no way people actually believe that. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, not only do they believe it, but they are trying to write it into actual policy. Uh, one of those around the, the issue, and this is, this is one that seems absolutely crazy to me, uh, is it, it functionally puts abortion in the category of defense of life and property from an intruder. That if somebody breaks into your home, you legally have the right to kill them out of personal defense. And in that view, it views an unborn child in the same category as a dangerous cat burglar that you have a legal right to remove from your life. Of course, this issue of creation and not birth defining humanity uh, goes into uh, a number of other things. There was a a sociologist uh, that uh, not just casually taught this, but actively taught this, firmly believed this reality uh, that a human's worth and viability within society should not be granted to them until they are two. Meaning that the point of abortion, uh, though it changes the procedure, obviously at that point, should be open and viable and all options given up until the point of the second birthday. It is creation not birth, that God says signifies human worth. This is the reason when uh, individuals suffer from a miscarriage at four weeks, five weeks, at the point that you don't really even know that you're pregnant. You're just maybe slightly past missing a period. And then all of a sudden it comes and there's heavy bleeding and the realization that, oh, I just miscarried. And there's this weight of grief that comes. It's because we know that life was lost. Apart from this perspective, it's all over the map. Because really... If God has not defined human worth and human value from the moment of conception, then there is no point at which we can actually really attribute worth. 
Creation, not birth, defines human life. Secondly, God's works and not our works determine our worth. God's works and not our worth determine our works. Look at verse 14. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a country in Scandinavia made a dramatic statement within the medical world. Uh, they had successfully, and this is, this is their official statement, they had ex- successfully eliminated Down syndrome from births for a period of years. Sounds remarkable. You found a cure for Down syndrome. That's not what they said. They said they had eliminated Down syndrome from births for a period of one to two years. They had specifically been able to identify through genetic testing of individuals going through the pregnancy process and identified if individuals were highly likely to be Down syndrome. And if they were highly likely to be Down syndrome, then they were able to terminate that pregnancy and that Down syndrome individual was not born. I've known a number of people um, through my lifetime that have been the parents of disabled individuals. My uh, mentoring pastor, Randy Wager, he's with the Lord now, uh, and his wife Jen uh, gave birth to their firstborn son, Keegan, who is an absolute joy. I think Keegan's about 27 now. Uh, He is... uh, uh, I guess what in medical community would be considered high functioning uh, Down syndrome. Uh, he loves Batman. Uh, he loves Taylor Swift. Uh, he is the happiest human being you'd ever met, meet. Uh, his capacity for work uh, is he's diligent at the tasks that he's given. Is he going to grow up to be a lawyer? Is he going to grow up to be a brain surgeon? Is he going to grow up to be a a teacher or some other what we might deem as more highly valuable member of society in those kind of capacities? Well, thank goodness, at the moment we all reach a certain age of which we can't do those things anymore, society does not remove our value of life. David wondered at God's work to bring him about and not his own work in his own value. As a society, we very often do this with individuals. Sometimes it's one of the first questions that we ask somebody when we meet them. What do you do for a living? And oftentimes in that, it's a question of, can I relate to you? What do you do and can I relate to you? But if they answer that they do something that by society standards is deemed to be maybe less valuable, less interesting, uh, less upwardly mobile, there is a sense of which there's this cultural pull to say, well, maybe I don't want to associate with this because, you know, do I, do I really want to be in that kind of a, a situation? I remember a couple a number of years back that I did some counseling with. She was a physician and her husband did uh, manual labor for a road construction company. Barely had a high school education. And they loved each other, but there was great tension 
in their relationship. And that was the point. They were on totally different uh, cultural strata within their sense of work and how that plays out in life. And this is a part that is woven into society. Uh, There was a a movement... um, in the early 1900s, uh, it reached its zenith in the 1930s uh, in the U.S. and then had its ultimate culmination in the 1940s in Nazi Germany called eugenics. And it was the idea that uh, the belief of, of Darwinism that the survival of the fittest was best done when we attributed the most apt, what we deemed to be the most valuable traits of a society, of a people's, and to eliminate those other things. And this plays into everything from uh, racism to classism to all kinds of other things. This brought about things like forced sterilization amongst native populations across the U.S. Uh, And this ultimately was what caused the Nazis to build the concentration camps was to eliminate the less desirables. Why? Because they weren't deemed to work as well as they deemed that they were. And the understanding that when does a human have life have worth, it is based upon God's work in creation of us and our image uniquely imprinted upon us and not upon our own works. We're beginning to try to understand this within human society. We have things like... uh, Uh, ADA standards for disabled people that try to help and make accommodations so that individuals that have limiting disabilities can still work within society and can still function in those kind of ways. But there is still great tension around this. And it is God's work, not our work, that determines when human life has worth. Third, God's knowing of us and not the circumstances of our conception determines our worth. God's knowing of us and not the circumstances of our conception determine our worth. Look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The secret nature of conception, the mystery of it. It's only been in the last hundred years that we've conceptually understood how does it happen. Like, where do babies come from has been a question that kids have asked their parents for eons, right? But up until about a hundred years ago, we didn't have a really great answer for that. Like, we knew the mechanics of it, but how does the thing happen in that secret place? And the dynamics of God knowing that throughout all of history. When you think of every human being that has ever walked on the face of this planet, we all came about through that same secret knowing of God. Though, how we came into this earth, the circumstances might have been different. Some people are born through a loving, married mother and father. Some people are born from a one-night stand. Some people are born through the criminal act of rape or conceived through the criminal act of rape. And yet in all of these, God's knowing of the person is what determines their worth and value. 
not the circumstances by which they came to be. This past week, earlier in the week, I uh, uh, revisited uh, an online service that I haven't checked out in about 10 years called Ancestry.com. You guys ever seen ever seen that? It's just a it's a genealogy stuff. I love I love genealogy stuff. I was real big into it uh, before I moved here, and I had signed up for an, an, uh, Ancestry.com about ten years ago, um, and they there was tons of stuff they didn't have. It was you know they, they there's lots of documents and stuff. I mean again, remember ten years ago Amazon was still mostly just selling books, so you know little bits change, and I was blown away by the amount of stuff that was there, the documents that had been scanned, all of that kind of stuff. But I was reminded afresh about one aspect of my family dynamic uh, that was a sore spot, is a sore spot. And it's the conception and birth of my grandfather, Edward Kopp, whose name actually, legally, uh, was changed to Edward Kopp. His biological name is Edward Bowden. So my last name should, by blood, be Bowden. But a man by the name of Dr. Herman Bowden, a physician, attending physician, uh, who uh, was doing his residency in New York in the 1920s, uh, met a nurse at a party. And it's the 1920s. Things are roaring, if you remember how that goes. And they woke up the next day and realized... Maybe we made a mistake. And that mistake turned into Edward Case Cop, who was born the bastard son of a nurse in New York. The only document associating the two of them together is my grandfather's Episcopalian infant baptism document, which I found on Ancestry.com with their signatures Edward Case Bowden parents listed and then witnesses that were there. Herman Bowden had nothing to do with my great-grandmother and had absolutely nothing to do with my grandfather. Went on to remarry, had other kids, went on his own life. My grandfather did not know that Mr. William Cop, who was an uh, enlisted man in the Coast Guard, was not his biological father. And he did not discover that he was not his biological father until he went to sign up for the Army. And he brought his paperwork, and his signature that he wrote down, Edward Cop, did not match his birth certificate. And his parents explained to him the situation. He legally changed his name to Mr. Cop. A few years later, my great-grandmother died, and Mr. Cop adopted my grandfather when he was 26. My grandmother had to sign permission for him to be adopted because they were already married. Throughout his life, he bore the weight of who his biological father was 
And I can remember having a conversation with about him because in genealogy terms, like that father line is one of those things you always, you know, you always want to figure that out because that's your last name, right? That's how you got that. So we wanted to learn that kind of stuff. And it stopped. It was, it was dead right there. And I talked to him about it and he never met him. Never met his... Uh, no, I take that back. He did meet him once. He did meet him once. And it was one of the most painful stories that he ever uh, shared with me. He said he sat down uh, and wrote a letter. Uh, sorry, it wasn't a meeting. It was a letter. Wrote a letter, mailed it to his father's home, told him about his life, told him about what he was, told him about his kids, because my, my dad and my uncle and aunt were born at the time. And Dr. Bowden wrote back to him and said, I didn't want you then, and I don't want you now. In 1982, Dr. Herman Bowden died. And he was a multimillionaire. He was one of the first heart doctors that served in Miami. Family relatives that knew of this reached out to my grandfather and said, he's loaded. You need to go after it. My grandfather's response, absolutely one of my heroes of my life. He said, great. I don't have to take care of my half-brothers or sisters. They're going to be taken care of. His conception. 1920, he didn't do that. That wasn't normal. That wasn't okay. It did not determine his life. It did not determine his legacy. It did not determine his humanity. So God's knowing of us in the secret, when we are formed, at that moment of creation, that is God's love. That's God's work. That's God's power. And however, however our life came to be, whatever circumstances made that come to be, it does not change the fact that God knew you and formed you and loved you and gave you worth. Even if the world doesn't give it to you, God did. Wonderful are your works. And David wrote, My soul knows it full well. Our soul knows God's wonderful works. It's why regardless of what culture you come from, when a new life is born, when a baby is born, people are in awe and wonder. It's such a joyous thing. Because our soul is enamored with this reality that new life has come. Our soul knows God's wonderful work. And this is why our sin... It's so absolutely heinous. It's because we know the character of God. We were made in His image. We were made to reflect Him. And our sin is so heinous because it is uh, an uh, abhorrence against God's wonderful work, His wonderful character. The sin of abortion, of murder, of greed, of lust, of pride, of racism, of bitterness, of covetousness, of adultery... All of these are rebellion against the very one who gives us our actual worth. Just think about this for a moment. Your family of origin may be a point of pride. It may be a point of groaning for you. But whether they are a point of pride or a point of resentment in your own life, they don't give you your worth. The nation in which you were born it does not give you your worth. The moment in time and the culture in which we live, it does not give you your worth. And society as a whole 
does not give you your worth. And we know that because even if they take, if everyone in the world takes away our self-worth, they can't do it because it's not theirs to take. Because it is God who gives us our humanity. And it's why sin is such a rebellion against Him. Such a hateful and heinous thing. So when it comes to the issue of when does a human life have worth, I think the ultimate biblical answer is it has worth from before the foundation of the earth when God in His foreknowing chose to send His Son to die to pay for our rebellion against a holy God so we could be reconciled to Him. The psalmist says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book when as yet there was not one of them. God knew your story. He knew every screw up. He knew every mess up. He knew every mess up of your parents. He knew every mess up of your society. He knew every joy and every sorrow that was going to take place. And yet in the midst of all of that, He loved you and sent His Son to die in your place to reconcile you to Him. Regardless of what your story is. Regardless of where you've landed on this issue in the past. The reconciliation of God is such an incredible gift. Seventy-three million people in the U.S. alone since 1973. People we've never met. Who didn't have a choice. Who didn't have an option. I remember talking to a physician not too many years ago. I was surprised. She said, I'm, I'm absolutely pro-abortion. I thought this is... Did not see that coming. She said, but I think there should be a change in the policy of it. Uh, both parties involved in the procedure should be able, should have to sign a waiver. And then, I'm, I'm for the procedure happening. And I went, I see, what, I see what you did there. Because the acknowledgement of humanity, we want to be acknowledged as human. When we look at race and ethnicity, that's a central point. Do we see each other, regardless of how different we are, as being fundamentally and equally human with those God-given, inalienable rights? Well, what point in time? What point in time are you considered human? When does human life have worth? Let's pray. Father, it is a heavy thing to speak on these subjects. Because these aren't just philosophical things, these are real. Members of our congregation have adopted children who were very nearly killed in abortion. We'd never know their smiles, we'd never hear their laughter. We'd never watch them grow. 
Lord, we are praying for the end of this practice. Not just in the United States, but in the world. Lord, we know that there's a lot that needs to change in that. There's a lot of help that needs to come to young women that are going to give birth to these children, either via uh, helping with adoption or helping with uh, providing for them housing and schooling and food and and, uh, basic essentials to raise a child. But even though those things are hard and we don't have answers for how to do those things, it doesn't change the reality that our worth is not based upon when we're born, how we're born, or what we can do after we're born. All of it is based upon You. And for that, God, I am so thankful. Because apart from You, I am absolutely worthless. So Jesus, thank You that You deemed us worthy of Your sacrifice to reconcile us to God. I pray, God, that You would uh, convict our hearts of this reality, encourage us, strengthen us, help us to understand that Though we may have faulted and failed in so many ways, we are so incredibly loved by You. We love You, God. It's Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.